Good morning. It's good to see everyone today. Um, welcome to those who are with us by live stream as well. We're going to open God's Word. That's what our custom is every Sunday morning as we come together to hear what God thinks, what God has to say to us. The bulletin says 2 Peter chapter 3. That is not going to happen this morning. Uh, when, the, when it went to print, that's what I was planning to do, a parallel between that passage and something else in Philippians. But uh, I didn't want to keep you all here until tonight. And my grandson told me that I needed to make this short this morning because he's got plans this afternoon, evidently. So, and it, I just wanted to uh, just stick with Philippians chapter 3. Turn there, if you will. Philippians chapter 3. We're going to talk resurrection this morning, of course. Resurrection of Jesus Christ is on our minds very much. We've been talking about it. Uh, Doug led us through an excellent presentation in, in our worship, our Bible study time this morning. We've been praying about it, reading about it from God's Word, and singing about it. I just loved our songs this morning as we sing about this great event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When you think of resurrection, you think of Jesus rising from the dead you think of the God-man, follow me now, you think of the God-man who was crucified, who died, who was buried, and rose from the grave, and who now sits at the right hand of the Father. The God-man, the one who at one time was made like us, who had a human body like us, a body that could get sick, a body that could age, a body that could feel pain, a body that did all the things we do in our human bodies and a body that could die. And now he is resurrected in a glorified body, a different body, still the God-man at the right hand of the Father. And what I want to point you to this morning is this, that he has this incorruptible body this glorified body, and I want you to think about how his resurrection provides us with sort of a preview or proof that that's going to happen to us someday. That's what I want you to think about this morning. That is proof of what happened to him is proof of what's going to happen to you and I one day. When he returns one day to come get us, all believers will experience the same transformation that Christ did when he rose from the dead. Let us sink in for a minute. That's what's going to happen to us. We are identified with him in his resurrection. What Good Friday we, is about his death, right? We have communion. We celebrate his death. We had a baptism service here last week or two weeks ago. We, we remember the resurrection, Buried with him in baptism, raised to new life. Christ did not have the same body when he came out of the grave. He was recognizable? Yes. He walked around, they knew who he was, things like that. But he didn't have the same body as he was when he walked on this earth. And baptism is a picture of what will one day happen to us. We're raised to that new life now. But one day we will experience a complete transformation just like he did. That is what I'm going to talk about a little bit with you this morning. A glorified body of Jesus. There's just something in the human heart 
that longs to experience this. I want change. I want change. All of our movies are like that these days, it seems like. Now, I haven't watched all these movies, but Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, right? Captain America. You saw the guy, what he looked like before the transformation. You saw what he became like, right? No, you probably didn't. I, don't, I didn't watch it either. But the point, is, <laughs> the point is, it's always going from plain to incredible. And there's just something in that that I want in my heart. He has put eternity in my heart that I know there's more to life than this. And I know that I want to live and be able to live forever. And I know I'm not going to be able to do it in this thing. It's, it's going down. The outer man is decaying. And this body just is not going to make it. And so there's just something in the human heart that says, God, there's got to be something better. There's got to be something better. Right now, we're all encased in in this body of flesh. Now, let me say one statement that the Bible is very clear on. Very clear on. It's straight from God's Word. We are mortal beings who will live forever. Understand that. We are mortal beings. The Bible is clear. We're going to live forever. And you're either going to live in heaven or hell. Heaven or hell. Only two choices. And you're going to have a body fit for that environment, whichever environment you end up in. Right now, we're encased in these fleshly bodies. And one day, the Bible says, the Lord Jesus Christ for believers will come back and give you an immortal soul and an immortal body. Suitable for heaven. You will also, if you're an unbeliever, You're going to have a body at some point suitable for hell and the torments of hell. The focus this morning is on those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. If your name is in that book, you are going to have a body one day like the Lord Jesus Christ had when he came out of that tomb. That is is the goal. That is the goal of our salvation, folks, to one day be completely conformed to the image of Jesus. We're kind of in process right now, but one day, 1 John 3, 2, write it down, don't have time for you to turn to all these verses this morning. 1 John 3, 2, beloved, listen to this, beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We're children of God, and right now, it doesn't appear what it's going to be, but he says, when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. We will be like him. We will be like him. He predestined us for this, if you read Romans 8, 29. We've been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. That is our greatest goal. That is our greatest hope. That is the goal of our Christian life. That is the goal of our salvation. Look at Philippians. Did I tell you to turn to Philippians yet? Man, we just are so far behind here. Philippians chapter 3. I forgot to tell you that. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Verse 10. This is Paul. Listen to what Paul says. He is consumed with this goal I'm talking about of conformity to the image of Christ. Verse 10 of Philippians chapter 3. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings 
and being conformed to his death in order that I may attend to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I already have obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may, no, may lay hold of that, get this, that I may lay hold of that for which, I, which also I was lay, laid hold of by Christ Jesus. There's a prize out there. He says, I'm pursuing it. I haven't laid hold of it yet, but I'm moving towards it. I'm pressing on towards it. He doesn't tell you the goal in these verses. He just tells you he's pressing on towards it. And he tells you the goal when he gets down to the verses that we're going to look at this morning, verses 20 and 21. For, notice verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice verse 21. Here's our verse, folks. Who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory? By the exertion of the power that he, is, ha, he has even to subject all things to himself. That is the climax of our salvation right there. That's what this all, is all about. The doctrine of salvation is a huge subject. It's not just about you believing in Jesus and being saved. It's a bigger picture than that. Much bigger. In fact, you, if you've gone to this church any length of time, you already know these things, but listen closely as I say them. Three phases. Three phases of salvation. First, there's the phase called justification. A one-time event. The moment of conversion. God applies. The moment you put your faith in Christ, God applies the substitutionary death of Christ to you, to your account. He credits what Christ did on the cross to you. He died for your sin. You're forgiven based on what Christ did. He declares you righteous. He declares you right in his eyes. That is a past event for believers that happens one time because of our faith and what Jesus did for us. That's the past phase of justification. The present phase of salvation. The present phase of salvation is this, the gradual, ongoing which begins the moment we put our faith in Christ, the minute we are justified. The Spirit of God begins to work in us, to sanctify us or to set us apart from sin. He uses trials to do that. He uses difficulties in our lives to do that, to separate us more and more from sin, to grow us and to mature us and to make us become more and more like Jesus in His image. And so we can say, I'm being sanctified. I'm being saved in that sense. It's got a present tense to it. I'm being saved from myself. I'm being saved from the, the, the sin around me. That's the present phase. And, and justification is the first phase. And if you're justified, you are being sanctified. If you were to tell me, I don't see any evidence that I've ever changed in my whole life. I don't see this change going on that you're talking about in this phase. Then I would say, then go back to justification. Go back to the first phase and check and be sure that's right. Make your election and calling sure. Because the evidence of that will be a change. The third phase of salvation is the future phase. That's glorification. The moment, the moment that we die, or the moment that Jesus returns, if you're not alive when he returns and you die before he returns, or if you're alive when he does return, this is the moment. At that moment, you will have all your sin removed, and you will be conformed to Christ, and you will be transformed, and you will be changed into a glorified body. That phase of salvation is the one that Paul is talking about in Philippians chapter 3, verse 21. That's the transformation I'm talking about this morning. 
That is something that is true for every believer. That is the goal of your salvation. That is where you're headed if you're a true believer in Christ. That is what you long for, the final future phase that's, that's noticed that is contingent on or is uh, connected to the resurrection of Christ. See, see, Christ's resurrection was not just a historical event in the past. It's, it's future as well. It has future implications for us, future ramifications for us because he rose from the dead, because he was changed and transformed with a glorified new body, we too will one day have a new body. So important, and gets into the whole debate of 1 Corinthians 15, which I have time this morning, we will be there, but we're not there yet, but we'll look at that in a, a little bit. But the whole point is, we need to be focused on that. Focused on that. Thinking about that. This is not all there is. I'm moving towards something. I won't always have the problems of this body. One day I'll have a new body. And my guarantee of that is that Christ had a new body. A glorified body. And Paul in this passage is telling us, hey, you stay focused on that. Be like, I am pressing on toward that. That's the prize, Paul says. That's the prize that I was laid hold of for. I was laid hold of for that reason. Romans 8, 29, to be conformed one day to his image. Folks, that's big picture stuff. And sometimes you've got to get your head out of the things of this world and get your minds on the big picture stuff, right? Help me see this through your eyes, God. Help me see what's going on here. I get under it all sometimes. Help me see the big picture of where I'm headed and where we're going and what this is all about. He says, he says we're to stay focused on that and he, he gives some ways we do that in these verses and that's what I just wanted to tell you. I, I left off last week in 2 Peter 3.11, just one little parallel. How shall we then live? I said that last week. Remember, how shall we then live? In light of the day of the Lord and all the events around the day of the Lord and the certainty of his coming again, how shall we then live? I talked just briefly and told you we would talk about that in the days to come. Well, this is Paul's, part of Paul's response to that question. How should I then live? With these events in the future, how should I then live? And he gives us some things here that we can focus on as we pursue Christ's likeness, as we pursue to be more like Jesus. First, he tells us in verse 20, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. He uses the word for there because what he's doing in that is he's contrasting the life of the Philippians and the li- his own life with the enemies of the cross. You look back in verse 19 and verse 18 maybe of this chapter, for, or, for many walk of whom I often told you that they are enemies of the cross, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Paul is saying the first thing you do, and these are all going to start with an L, Live like the world is not your home. 
The first thing is we got to live like the world is not your home. This is not my final destination. Live like that. These people, we're told in verse 19, were, had their minds set on earthly things. They were earthbound in their thinking and their understanding. This world is all they have. This world is where they've planted themselves. Their hope is in this world. They find their meaning and contentment in life and the things of this world. They're just worldly people. They're caught up in the world. He says, you're not to live like that. You live like this world is not your home. Our destiny is different Our destiny is different. We know there's more to life than what this world has to offer. Our citizen, see the verse? Our citizenship is in heaven. See it in verse 20? Paul is writing, by the way, he's writing to believers in the city of Philippi, which is in Macedonia. Philippi had a unique distinction as a colony of Rome, a colony of Rome. It's in Macedonia, but it was a colony of Rome, meaning it had special rights and privileges that other cities in the empire did not have. They didn't have to follow the rules of the provisional government. They were a city that was made up mostly of veterans of the Roman army where they came to retire and live. And they had rights and privileges because they were citizens of Rome and they belonged specifically to Rome. Everybody couldn't have that distinction of being a citizen of Rome, but the Philippians did. Philippi was a unique city in that sense, and they took pride in that. If you read in Acts chapter 16, uh, you, which is not, we're not going to do, but if you go to Acts chapter 16, you read a little bit about that. When Paul went to that city and was thrown in jail there and the things that happened there. So there are no, here's, here's my point, here's my point. They're a colony of foreigners. You follow me? They're living in Philippi. Rome is way over here in Italy. They're in Macedonia, but they have the privileges of Italy over here. They have all the rights and privileges of that. So they are a colony of foreigners. So they get what Paul's saying. We're not citizens of this world. We're citizens of heaven. We're citizens of a place that's far away. They understand that. And they saw... Their church, then, as a colony of heaven. That's how you wanted them to view it. Your church is a colony of heaven. And you need to make sure that your conduct reflects that you're a citizen of heaven. Just like you do in the practical sense of day-to-day life, being a citizen of Rome and colony of Rome. But no, you're a citizen, you're a colony of heaven. It says in 127 of Philippians, you don't have to turn there, but 127, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. There's a certain way you live because you're a citizen of heaven. That's what I want our church to think like. I really do. I want to think like this in our church. We are a colony of heaven here on earth. We are a colony of heaven here on earth. We reflect the values of heaven. We reflect the, the, the standards of heaven. We, aff- we reflect the mind of our God, who is our King and our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
What does Abraham say in Acts 11? Not Abraham say, but what does the writer of Hebrews say about Abraham in, Act, in Hebrews chapter 11? He says he lived in a tent. He lived in a tent. Abraham, you're a rich man. Why don't you live in a house? Because, the next verse says, he was looking for a city whose architect and builder was God. Therefore, tent dweller. Therefore, here on earth, just passing through. I'm going to put down roots. And it's very difficult for you and I, folks, living in this country. I prayed about the Congo. They have no problem with this. Glad to be a colony of someplace else. But you and I live in America, probably the most powerful and wealthiest country the planet has ever seen. And we get pulled into the values. We get pulled into the, quote, patriotism. And all these things are evil. I'm not saying that. We get caught up in all the things and, and temptations of this world. And basically, it, what, what God says becomes secondary to us many times because we pursue the pleasures of our culture more than we pursue God. In Hebrews eleven sixteen, he says, speaking about those who are in that hall of faith in Hebrews 11, they desired a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. He has prepared a city for them. What am I trying to say in all this? I'm sorry, I'm trying to say your friends, your neighbors, people you go to school with, they ought to know, they ought to know, and it ought to be obvious to them that you belong to a kingdom that is not of this world. Do they know that? Do they know that? Do we reflect the life and values that reflect to those people we are around that we don't belong to this world, that we are in this world, but we are not of this world? Do they see that? Do they know that? When Pilate confronts Jesus at his trial, are you a king? Where's your kingdom? All this kind of things. My kingdom is not of this world, Jesus says. My kingdom is not of this world. Romans 12, 2 Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. Don't let this world squeeze you into its mold. It's trying to do that. The world, my friends, has an agenda. It wants to squeeze you into its way of thinking. It wants you to, it wants you to have a marriage that it says is the right way to have a marriage. It wants you to say, raise your kids the way we tell you to raise your kids. It, we don't tell you, it will tell you, have the values and the principles and all of those things that we tell you are right. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Does the waitress at the restaurant, does she know by your behavior towards her that you're not a king, that you're not part of this world by the way you treat them? Do people see that you're different and they wonder what planet you're from? Because we don't breathe the same air. We're aliens as believers. We're in the world, yes. Christ did not take us out of the world, yes. But we are not of the world because we have been changed from within. And we're in the process of becoming changed in the future as well. 
I read this to you back when we were studying 1 Peter chapter 2. You don't have to turn there. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among unbelievers so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, glorify God on the day of visitation. Turn over one book from Philippians. Hold on to it. Go to Colossians chapter 3 verse 1. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, it's, I think it's one book, isn't it? Philippians, Colossians, yeah. Um, Therefore, if you have been raised with, up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on earth. That's the same idea Paul said in Romans 12 too. Transform your thinking. Transform your thinking. Think, think, set your mind on things above. Someone, someone said a long time ago, I've heard this several times, someone said Christians can get so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. I've heard that statement before, but I want to tell you something. I think the, obvi- the opposite is more true. I think Christians can sometimes get so earthly minded they're no heavenly good. That's what happens to a lot of us. We just get so caught up in the way the world thinks and the world's values. We, we first, the first place we run to is the world's counsel or, the, uh, a counsel or to the world's books, the world's literature to find the answers to the problems that God has given us solutions to in his very word. If you want to breed discontent in your life, then set your mind on the things of this world because the world is programmed to make you discontent. And when you put your anchor, your life into the values of the world, you will find that you are moving more and more to a very discontent and complaining and bitter and unhappy and unfulfilled life. This world will just make you worry more. The world will just make you fear more. When your mind is fixed on that, Remember the story of Pilgrim's Progress? Christian goes to a place called Vanity, Vanity Fair. If you've read the, the, the analogy in the, of the Christian life in Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, he goes to the, the street, down the street of Vanity Fair, and the world and all its pleasures are screaming at him. Here's, he is on his way to that city, that celestial city, and uh, on the way he has to go through Vanity Fair, and he gets constantly distracted by all the things and all of these uh, purveyors and, and vendors who want to sell him and lure him in to all the worldly pleasures. Come over here, come over here. And you know what he has to end up doing, we're told in Pilgrim's Progress? He has to look up and put his fingers in his ear so he doesn't hear him anymore. I, I, don't wanna, I, I just can't hear it anymore. I can't listen to this anymore. I got to get out of this. It's, it's pulling on me. That's what we're in. We're in Vanity Fair. The world is constantly screaming at us. Change your values. Throw that book out the window. Don't believe that. It's too simplistic. It's not scientific enough that they're scientific anymore, but the point is that it's, too scient- it's not scientific enough. It's so old-fashioned. Who believes that anymore? That's what the world wants to continually throw at us. Come over here and please yourself and love yourself and realize your self-realization and exalt yourself. That's what the world's doing. He says, you're not a citizen of the world. 
And as you're going to run this race toward conformity to Christ, Paul says, the first thing you've got to do is realize you're not a citizen of this world. Do not let, let the love of the world control you. The second thing he says, go back to Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. I don't have to say a whole lot about this one because I have talked about this subject so much in 2 Peter in weeks past, but Philippians 3.20, he says this, after he says, after he says, for our citizenship is in heaven, he says, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He promised he would come back, folks. He promised he's coming back. John 14, 2, in my, house, my father's house are many mansions. In my father's house are many rooms, whatever translation you have. Uh, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come back and get you. He made a promise to them in the book of John, chapter 4. In Acts chapter 1, 11, at the ascension, the angel appears as Christ is rising up to go to heaven. The angel tells them, just as you have seen him depart into heaven, the same way he will come back. He gives these promises of a second coming over and over throughout the New Testament. The New Testament church was a second coming church. The New Testament church was looking for Christ to come back in their lifetime. As I've said in weeks past, as we've gone through 2 Peter, and we too should look forward to his coming again, anticipation. We should, we should be those who are prepared and ready for his second coming, his imminent second coming, his coming again. You know, it doesn't matter how things play out in our world. Understand this, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what Red China, excuse me, China does or North Korea does or Russia does. It doesn't even matter who's president in Washington. Christ and his kingdom are all that matters, and they're going to happen. They are going to happen. God is sovereign, and he orchestrates all things according to his purpose. And I don't always understand the chaos of it all and all the crazy things going on around me and all of that, but this one thing I do know is Christ is coming back, and he's going to have a kingdom, and he's going to make all the wrongs right. He's going to bring back true, true justice. He will get the vengeance one day. I don't need to do that. In fact, I'm not called to do that. I'm called to preach the gospel. We'll talk about that more next week as we go back to 2 Peter. But I'm called to help rescue as many people out of this mess as I can through the gospel. And so it's about Jesus and his kingdom. Eagerly is that word that's used there. Eagerly is the idea your, your, your neck is thrust forward. You just thrust forward. It's like you're on your tippy toes. You know, I just want to see him coming. It's eager. I'm eager for his return. I am so eager to see him. And I could take you to so many New Testament passages, 1 Corinthians 1, 7, 2 Peter 3, 12. But there is one I want to take you to because this one is terrifying. This one is terrifying about his second coming. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians 1. Stay in, stay in Philippians. We'll be right back. Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. As believers, we should not fear his second coming. But unbelievers should fear his return. He gives this very sober warning in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 
He says in verse seven, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, that's his second coming. Notice verse eight. He will deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. That is what awaits the unbeliever. The second coming of Christ is not good news for those who reject the gospel. Death is not good news. And I understand why an unbeliever would fear death. He should fear death. He should fear death. Because of going into eternity without Christ, without faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, is terrifying to fall into the hands of the living God and face his judgment. Then he says in verse 10, when he comes to be glorified in his saints, see that? This is you and I on that day and be marveled at among all who have believed. So as believers, we don't need to fear his second coming. Unbelievers need to fear his second coming. Unbelievers need to see it as a motivation to get saved is what they need to see it as. If you don't trust in Jesus to pay the payment for your sin, then you're going to pay for your sin yourself. That's the reality. That is the reality. I'm not just standing up here giving you my opinion this morning. That's what this book says. And you may not like what this book says, but like I said a few weeks ago, this book just doesn't move. It just sits there and looks at me. I can try to go around it and make it say something else, but you know what? It doesn't change its view ever. It's the Word of God. It stands forever. And it's been around a lot longer than you and I have. And many people have had to crush it and burn it, and they've, they've done it. They've burned it, and they've done all kinds of But you know what? It still stands. Because it's not, because it's the Word of God. He's the one that says this stuff, I'm telling you this morning. He's the one that says there's a heaven and there's a hell. He's the one that says you can have eternal life or eternal death. The third thing, go back to Philippians chapter 3. I recognize that eschatology is not, eschatology, the doctrine of future things, is not the, the most precise of all the doctrines that we study. Like I can study the doctrine of God and it's very precise and it's not a whole lot of question and, and, and the doctrine of, of salvation and the doctrine of, of Christ and a lot of doctrines like that, you know, that we adhere to. Um, and you find our statement of faith. That's, I understand the doctrine of eschatology, that there's, there's some disagreements in things uh, among godly people. We've said, I said this to you last week. But nothing should, call, because there are those disagreements, I don't think we ought to let the imminency, the fact that he's coming, and he's coming at any moment, I don't think that we should let that be overlooked because we might have disagreements in our eschatology, our doctrine of future things. Notice in Philippians 3.21, we see the third thing that Paul would say, hey, you, need to, you know what you need to do? You need to stay focused on, you need to stay focused on these things. You need to stay focused on the fact that the, uh, the world is not your home. You need to stay focused on the fact that uh, uh, Christ could return at any moment. You need to stay focused now on the fact of, uh, he says, let's look at what your, your, your transformation is going to be like. What is that transformation going to be like? Notice in verse 21, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. 
by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So I told you this already. The goal is to transform our bodies into conformity with his body. That's when Paul talks about the redemption of our body. Yes, my soul's going to be redeemed. It already is redeemed. But one day I'm going to have a body that's redeemed as well. That's the argument. That's the question that 1 Corinthians 15 deals with. And that's where I'm going to take you in just a moment. Jumped ahead here. Don't go there yet. Let me tell you two other things real quick that you need to understand before I get to 1 Corinthians 15. When a person dies, understand this, when a person dies, he is immediately taken into the presence of Christ. Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Hey, listen, I would much rather go and be with Jesus, Paul says, or, but I'm torn because I also want to do ministry with you here. But it's better to go be with Christ. So I'm either here or here. Point I'm trying to make with that is there is no purgatory, there is no soul sleep, and there is no reincarnation. You're either in the presence of Christ or you're not. You're either in the presence of Christ or you're here or you're in hell. He says another place, we have this earthly tent. He uses this language in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He calls our body an earthly tent. It's our house, he calls it. My soul lives in this house. Um, it's, but if it gets torn down, if somebody kills it, guess what? I have a building from God, he says. I have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan. Yes, we do. Longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Yes, we do. I, I want out of this body, Paul says, this body of sin, this body of sickness, this body that has aches and pains and all kinds of things. I want to be out of this body. It says in verse 6 of that same chapter in 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. While I'm still in this body, I'm not with the Lord. So talking to Christians right now, there's no purgatory, there's no in-between, there's no soul sleep, and there's no reincarnation. Your body goes into the grave, your soul goes into eternity. And before the return of Christ, your body is going to be resurrected into a new body, joined with your spirit that already was in heaven. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what the Bible teaches. But we will not be disembodied spirits forever because there's time when Christ does return and comes and gets us. He will redesign our earthly bodies. That is the teaching of 1 Corinthians 15, my friends. My present body right now is only suited for this world. But he is going to one day give me a body suited for another world for his kingdom, for heaven. He's going to give me a body that's suited for that. That is what we're going to see here in 1 Corinthians 15. So if you'll turn to 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to try to do this in our remaining time. 
And see, this presents all kinds of questions, I know. Rod, you're telling me we put a body in a grave and that body is going to one day be a literal, glorified body? That, those, those ashes and that rotten decay, that's going to one day be a glorified body? Is that what you're saying in this? I'm saying, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. The, the Greek philosophers of Paul's day in writing to the Corinthians, they had the same arguments. They saw the body as evil. You need to do everything you can to get out of this body. It's so evil. Your spirit is good. The body is evil. And that's what they were saying. So along comes Paul with his teaching that I'm going to have a glorified body one day because Jesus has one. That we are so in union with Christ that what happens to Christ happens to us. They mock that teaching. And that is what 1 Corinthians 15 is about. 1 Corinthians 15 is not just an apologetic to defend the resurrection of Jesus. The argument of 1 Corinthians 15 is to defend the fact that you and I as Christians will also have a resurrected body like Jesus. That is the argument of 1 Corinthians 15. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. Look at verse... And so he's using Christ's resurrection as a springboard to talk about that. Notice in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15. But Christ has been raised from the dead... Okay, that's what we're talking about. Notice the first fruits of those who, are, who have died or who are asleep. First fruit, you understand that. When you want to go check on the quality of your harvest, you first go get the first fruits and you see what the rest of the harvest is going to be bringing in. That's what a first fruit is. You see that in 1520 of 1 Corinthians, correct? The first fruit of those who are asleep. He rose from the dead. He was the first fruit of those who rise from the dead. There are others to follow. That's the point of verse 20. Verse 21, for since by man came death, that's Adam, by man Christ also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, in Christ all will be made alive. Go down to verse 35. But some will say, and this maybe is what you're saying, maybe you're saying this, how in the world are the dead raised? I added the word world. How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? So he's asking how it happens and what kind of body are they going to have? What is this resurrection body going to be like? It's a good question. Uh, What's it going to look like? How's it going to happen? That's a good question. In the Greek way of thinking, I already described that to you. It couldn't happen according to the Greeks. It's foolishness to think that you're going to have uh, ashes from a grave all of a sudden become a glorified body. That's nonsense. It's pretty ugly down there in the, gro- in the tombs. And that's what people say today. Somebody's cremated. Somebody falls off a boat and gets eaten by sharks. Dies in a house fire. How in the world? How is a decomposed body put back together is the question. 1 Corinthians 15, 36. You fool. You know why he says that? You don't trust the power of God for Nothing. We're talking about God doing this. We're not talking about me doing this, Paul says, or somebody else. You fool. 
that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Paul is now going to give an illustration from nature, an illustration from the plant world, okay? The plant world. You have a low view of God's power. Don't you know that when you sow something, unless it dies, you're not going to get anything to grow from it? He's going to say the resurrected body won't be identical to the one that went in the ground. Because you know why? When you put a seed in the ground, you sit a seed in the ground, what comes out does not look like that seed anymore. You follow me? Who would have ever thought that acorn would become an oak tree? That's going to be his argument. What you sow brings forth something else. That's his point. Follow me. Verse 37. And that which you sow, you, you do not sow the body which is to be. You don't put a resurrected body in there, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. You follow what I'm just saying here? You're learning something from nature at the same time while he's talking about our bodies being put in the ground and coming out as something else? You put a seed of corn, a stalk comes out, a grain of wheat, a shaft of wheat comes out, things like that. This seed produces a flower. This endless bodies that God has designed from each seed that's sown. It's God's design, Paul's argument goes. Go to verse 42. So also, verse 42, going down. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. When your body goes into the grave, it's perishable. It's perishable. It died. It is raised, though, imperishable. The seed that went into the ground that was sown looks nothing like what's going to come out. Not subject to deterioration or the aging process or no more sickness or no more death. That's the body that's going to come out. Verse 43, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Those all define us, right? We have all those limitations. Verse 45, so also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last man, the last Adam, or Christ, became a life-giving spirit. I told you this earlier. Adam had a body that was perfectly suited for life in the garden. We being in Adam have those same natural bodies that are good for this life, eyes and ears, all of our body parts. And there's so many things we can do with these bodies created after the pattern of Adam but in some, the same way, one day we'll have a resurrected body patterned after Christ. The risen, resurrected, glorified, incorruptible body that Christ has. You know what? He's a prototype. That's the point. He's a prototype of the bodies that we will one day have. Go to verse 46. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. In other words, the better does not come, excuse me, the better does come from the inferior. The inferior was put in the ground. The better came out of it. 
Verse 47, the first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. I I like this thought here. Adam was made from dust. Do you understand that? Earthy, he was made from dust. If God could take the dust and do something so fascinating and complex as a body for Adam, then he's gonna have no problem using your decomposed body and raise it from the dead and make a new body. That's the reason he says you're fools. You don't recognize the power of God, he tells these Corinthian critics. Go to verse 48. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. As is the heavenly, so also those who are heavenly. Listen, if it happened to Jesus, it will happen to us. And it's because I'm in union with Christ. The baptism that I went through and you go through as a believer pictures what happens. I'm united to Christ. He rose, I rose with him. And you you think about what a resurrected body looks like. Doug read it for us this morning, a few examples, but um, he was recognizable. That resurrected body, you'll be recognizable. Um, You will be able, he, he was able to eat. You don't necessarily, he didn't have to, but he did. He was touchable. He was able to breathe. He was not restricted by space and time, things like that. It's going to be different. Go to verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. That's what, that's what our passage is about this morning, isn't it? Philippians 3.21, who will transform the body of our humble state in conformity with the body of Christ. That's what we've been studying this morning in Philippians 3.21. These bodies are going to be bodies suited for the spiritual realm. And this tells, and then he goes on and says this. How does this work? Verse 50, at the resurrection, God is going to give us a new body that will never die. Verse 50, I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. You've got to be changed got to be changed. You got to be suited for heaven. Behold, I tell you a mystery. I'm telling you something they didn't know in the Old Testament. I'm telling you something that's new information, new revelation here. That's what the word mystery is, not revealed before. We will not all sleep. Everybody's not going to die. There are going to be some people still alive when this transformation takes place, but we will all be changed. People who have died will be changed. People who are still living at that time will be changed. Sleep is a term for death, by the way. We will not all sleep. It's a term for death. Some Christians, like I said, will never die physically, but we will all be changed and those believers who are alive when the Lord returns will not die. And they will ex- the ones that have already died will experience resurrection. Listen, I don't have time to go into this morning, but I, my theology tells me, we're talking about the rapture of the church here. My theology tells me that the language that's being used here, I'm fixing to read to you in 1 Corinthians 15 and John 14 and other places, is not talking about Revelation uh, 19 when Jesus puts his feet on the Mount of Olives and it splits. That's second coming language. This is rapture language. This is caught up to meet the Lord in the air language. You find in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 4. Don't have time to develop all that this morning, but my point, regardless of the point on that, it's the gathering of believers, the gathering of the church. Notice in 
verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable and will be changed. Your eye is the fastest thing on your body. It moves faster than anything else. The twinkling of an eye. You're going to be changed that quickly. This is how it's going to happen. The last trumpet, when Christ comes, I believe, to take his church, he will change us, transform us into the image of Christ. He will conform us to, to Christ. We will be changed at that moment. The question to you this morning is, this could happen at any time. The question for you Regardless of what you think about our eschatol- my eschatology on this issue, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. That's the goal of your salvation. You are going to be transformed one day as a Christian. The question to you is this. You don't know when this is going to happen. It's imminent. Are you ready for it to happen? If you're not a believer, my friends, I encourage you to repent. I encourage you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I encourage you to put your faith and trust in the one who came into this world for the purpose of dying for you and for me, to taking my sin on himself and being judged by God in my place. I encourage you to put your faith in the one who gives me a promise of eternal life and who one day promises me that I will be conformed to his image. Someday it'll be too late. And someday you're just going to be sitting back in, in, in hell thinking, man, that preacher said all that and I just turned my head away from that. Or my mother said that, or my father said that, or my friend said that, and I just rejected it. Someday that could happen to you. You could walk out of here and die in a car accident or sickness or something. And when you die, it's too late. It's too late to believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Today is the day of salvation. I encourage you on this Sunday that we recognize and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that you put your hope and your trust and your faith in him, and you will be saved. He promises that. God, I thank you for our time. For a lot of stuff today, Lord, a lot of stuff. A lot of theology. But I pray the one thing we don't walk out of here missing is that because our Lord is at the right hand of the Father with an incorruptible body, transformed body, that we too will one day, because of what happened to Him, that will happen to us. We thank You for that. We rejoice in that. All of us know, God, that this world is not all there is. All of us know, God, whether we believe it or not, we know there's got to be more than this. There's got to be more than this. I pray that would be motivation for the unbeliever to put their faith and trust or at least to ask questions about the truth of what's been said this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.